All right, if you want to make your way back toward your seat, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 9. We're going to start this morning in verse 19, but uh, before you do, I want, to, I want to share a story. It's probably been six or seven years now uh, from what is one of uh, the most memorable runs of my life. It's forever seared into my memory. I was running south on Flintlock, and when you do that, there's the long downhill that starts up kind of above Shoal Creek Elementary School and works its way all the way down to their Shoal Creek Veterinary Clinic there and then Chipotle and everything over there on the right side of the road. So I'm running down that long hill and I can see up in front of me that there's some sort of like, uh, there's something happening on the sidewalk area where I'm running and I'm, I'm too far away to see exactly what's happening initially. But as I get closer, I realize that there's a pack of what appear to be uh, rabid, um, definitely untamed, wild Pomeranians. <laughs> like, like four of them on the sidewalk, and they're clearly eating out of a couple of trash bags that have been set there by the curb from what is now Woodneath Library, but used to just be the house that was back there off the road. And so as I'm, as I'm running closer and closer, I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do when I get to them? Because it's also right at, you know, whatever time there in the morning is elementary school drop-off. So the road, Flintlock, is, is full of cars, most of them trying to make the right uh, the right turn to go into Shoal Creek to drop off their kids or the left turn across or the right turn coming down. And normally maybe what I would have done, uh, it's not the first time that I've had like a dog encounter while I've been out on a run. And I've gotten to the point where it's just, a lot of times it's just easier to cross the street, but Shoal Creek is wide. There's the median and there's a lot of traffic because it's time to drop off kids. And so I'm thinking I'm just going to have to uh, try to sneak by them. Like maybe they'll be so interested in the trash that's in those bags, they won't notice me. And so as I get somewhat close there, I pop down into the curb, uh, into the gutter there on the street so that I can hopefully just run right by. Well, that didn't work because as soon as I ran by, uh, one of the Pomeranians, who was clearly the pack leader, a white one, he took off chasing me, and the other three joined him. What started as just kind of an easy, like, leisurely, normal run for me has now turned into a speed workout as I'm running down the hill toward the vet clinic and, like, toward Chipotle and 152, and these dogs are chasing me. And if you could have, like, paused my life right there and let me narrate my own existence... It would have been one traffic lined up both directions, skinny human being being chased by four rabid, feral <laughs> Pomeranians. If you could have just paused my life there and let me narrate, it would have been one of those experiences where I said, that's me. And you're probably wondering how I got into this situation. <laughs> I... At some point, because I'm the superior species, I have longer legs and greater endurance, they just gave up the chase, somewhere near Chipotle. After that, I started thinking to myself, someone in that line of traffic knows me <laughs> and is going to ask me inevitably what the heck was happening. And I'm going to have to try to, you know, what does this experience say about me? What does this say about 
the dogs. Like maybe my best bet is just to, to say, when they ask me what was going on, to say, wrong guy. I have no idea <laughs> what it is that you're talking about. I start playing with like, how am I going to address this when it comes time for me to, uh, to do so? When we started our series in Romans, I mean, we were like a week into it and I had people saying, what are you going to do when you get to Romans chapter nine? <laughs> the, the options available were uh, run from it to maybe get, you know, work our way nice and slowly and thoroughly through Romans chapter one, all the way through chapter eight, and then just give one sermon on nine, 10 and 11 and hope that nobody noticed the style change and then pick it up in 12 and just keep going. None of those are appropriate responses. We need to take difficult passages of scripture head on when they come to us and be just as diligent and thorough in a difficult passage as we are in the ones that maybe seem a little bit easier or maybe a little bit more palatable. Romans 9 is challenging. In fact, uh, it's not just readers a couple uh, thousand years later who think that something like Romans 9 is challenging. It was challenging for the people at that time. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Peter says this, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight, to be at peace. Also regard the patience of our Lord's salvation, um, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of the scriptures. Last week we started uh, looking at Romans 9 verses 6 through 18 and we began that by talking about Isaiah 55 that there are matters of scripture, there are matters of God's character that are simply higher than our ways, that are higher than our thoughts, that he is a being is separate and different from us. He's holy, he's other, and that there are aspects of his character that we simply cannot fathom in their full and incomplete because we're bounded by our own finite human minds. This week, I want us to start with this, just as an acknowledgement this, this passage is challenging. There are sentences and phrases and words in here that are hard for us to completely wrap our minds around, but we're not going to twist them. We're not going to run from them. We're going to approach them as we approach all of Scripture, which is to say, God, what does this tell us about who you are? What does it say about who we are? And more importantly, as all of Scripture is given to us for, what does this say about what it means for humanity to live in relationship with you? How do I take something like Romans chapter nine, get the truth from it that I can, not try to press it further than it actually goes, and then live in light of what it is that you reveal about yourself and about me and about humanity and the way that you work. And so that's what we're going to do, and we're going to do so with a continued dose of humility, uh, with a pleading with God to give us grace and insight in order to understand what we can, and to know the appropriate place to stop. And so I want to, I want to just start us right there. Uh, pray that the Lord would give us that humility and would give us insight, and then we'll step into Romans 9, starting in 19. So if you'll pray with me. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to gather together uh, as a church in awe of your grace and your mercy, Lord, for a chance to uh, 
gather together around your word and around the cross, Lord. God, I pray that you would keep our hearts in a position of humility, Lord, that you would speak to us clearly this morning. God, that your word would be clear. God, I pray that we would see in it a revelation of who you are to the degree that we can understand your infinite, indescribable being and glory and grace. God, I pray that you would give us insight into how it is that we take the words of Romans chapter 9, Lord, and we not just seek to understand them like we would in a textbook, God, but allow them to be applied to our lives and to our hearts, God, and we see how to live in light of those and in light of who you are and how you work. God, I pray that you would take these truths, God, that you would take your word and you would press it into our hearts so that when we leave here, God, by your spirit, we're emboldened and empowered to live lives that glorify you and that seek to be molded into the image of Christ. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me set the broad context um, as I like to do. Some of you might be joining us here in the middle of our series in Romans, and uh, I want to at least have us all somewhat on the same page so that we can go forward together. Romans 9, 10, and 11 offers what is called a theodicy, a defense or an explanation or justification of God, how he acts, how he works, who he is. What we've been seeing and what we'll continue to see as we work through these three chapters is a display of the consistency and holiness of the word of God and the work of God in the justification of humanity. Romans is all about justification and 9, 10, and 11 seeks to answer a specific question in relation to that theological issue of salvation. It answers this question, has the word of God failed because the promises that God made to Israel haven't been applied to all of Israel? Is God consistent in his word? Is he trustworthy in the way that he acts? Is he holy in how he behaves? And so chapter nine does that from the viewpoint of God's sovereignty. Chapter 10 does it from the viewpoint of human responsibility. Chapter 11 is going to look at it from a perspective of of God's ultimate purpose in all of this working and in all of this conversation. Each chapter functions the same way. It starts with Paul giving an identification with the Israelite people in chapters, chapter 9. Those were verses 1 through 5. He then offers some sort of doctrinal explanation. And in Romans 9, that starts in verse 6 and works all the way down through verse 24. And then there's a Old Testament scriptural identif- or authentication. In Romans 9, that runs from verse 25 through the end of the chapter in verse 33. We're in the middle of that doctrinal explanation. We're going to pick up in verse... 19 this morning, and we're going to work our way through 29. So we'll get into what Paul has to say about the Old Testament and its support of what he's laying out here in Romans chapter 9. In Romans 9, we're seeing that the word of God is consistent and the work of God is holy. That from the very beginning, God's word has been consistent. He made a promise to Abraham that Abraham would be a nation and that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And yet, Paul says, not all Israel are true Israel. That's verse 6. That the covenant promises made to Abraham were never for all of his physical descendants. That there was a choosing. A choosing of Isaac, not Ishmael. A choosing of Jacob, not Esau. And that God's consistent in that choosing. His word is consistent. He's holy in that choosing because all of it points to his name. The glory and the goodness of his name. Explicitly, Paul says in verses 17 and 18, that name is about God's mercy, that he is merciful. He displays himself 
to be merciful. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He has compassion on whom he will have compassion. That's verse 15. And then he offers Pharaoh as this example and extends that and says, he will harden whom he hardens. That's uh, verse 17. How this is moving is that Paul starts in verses six through 13. He's talking about God's word. His word is consistent. Then from 14 to 18 last week, but really all the way down through 24, he's talking about God's work. And then he'll end by going back and talking about God's word. And so that's kind of the movement. We're right in the middle of that. We're right in the middle of seeing that the work of God is holy. Specifically, from verses 17 and 18, Scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he hardens. Verse 19, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul is vocalizing the question that he thinks his Israelite readers will ask. If God could harden Pharaoh in this kind of way, how could Pharaoh be held responsible? How could God find fault? Who could possibly resist the work of God in doing something like that? This isn't fair. That's essentially the question. How is God fair in doing this? The idea of God's choosing, his election, his work in this case, is challenging for us. It leaves us with a host of other questions. We can't deny the fact that scripture, both in Romans and in other places, speaks clearly about God's role in human salvation. On the flip side of that, we also can't deny the fact that in Romans and in other places, scripture talks about the human will in terms of believing and repenting and obeying. Those two things seem at odds with one another. They seem irreconcilable. My encouragement last week, my encouragement this week, my encouragement going forward in future weeks is that we shouldn't allow a theological system to dictate what Scripture says. Whether that be to just take the lens of Arminianism, free choice, and to slap it down on top of Scripture and to say, because I believe this way, I'm going to put this on the word of God and it will therefore have to say everything in alignment with what I already believe. We shouldn't do that. If we were to do that, it would force us to try to make some statements about what the Bible says about election and try to write them off because our theological system demands that we do so. On the flip side, if you were to take Calvinism and this idea of election and predestination and just slap it down on top of the Bible and say, I'm going to read all of scripture through this lens of Calvinism, it will force us to try to mitigate or minimize or explain away anything that talks about some semblance of choice. To do either is to not allow scripture to speak for itself. What we need to do is we need to allow scripture to say what it says and to form what it is that we, or how it is that we understand who God is and how he works and the things that he does. Arminianism, Calvinism, any other theological construct that you were to want to put together and to talk about, those aren't bad things, but they can't be the means by which we allow Scripture to define itself. We have to allow Scripture to speak and to try to understand it as best we can. I said last week, I'll say it again this week, I think at the furthest extremes of God's sovereign election and humanity's free choice, I think both are in play. 
in a way that we can't understand, in a way that's higher than our ways, in a thought that's higher than our thoughts, I think both are absolutely at play. A theologian named Charles Simon, a pastor and a theologian, says it this way. When I come to a text that speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. When the apostles exhort me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself to that side of the question. As wheels in a complicated machine may move in opposite directions and yet serve a common end, so may truths apparently opposite be perfectly reconcilable with each other and equally serve the purpose of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. Romans 9.19, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? It's an understandable question, but Paul takes issue with it. Look at verse 20. But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? What Paul finds at fault here is not the simple act of asking God a question, but the attitude from which the question is is asked. The Bible, particularly in Psalms or even with Mary when she's told that she's going to give birth to Jesus, the Bible's full of people asking questions wondering at what God is doing or how he's doing it. Different translations render verse 20, the first part of verse 20, differently. I think the CSB gets it right when it says, who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Teachers, parents, students, kids, we know the difference between asking a genuine question and talking back. Let me just take a school example since school starts this week. Your teacher says one day, we're going to have a test on Friday. There's a huge difference between you saying, what's on the test? How should I prepare for the test? What do I need to know for the test? There's a difference between asking that question and saying, who put you in charge of tests? (laughs) Who decided that you're the one that gets to determine that I have to know this knowledge? There's a difference between asking a genuine question and talking back, right? It's different, parents, when you say, be home at 11 o'clock and your child says, can we, just, can we just talk about why that's the curfew and you know, what that number is? And your child saying, who died and put you in charge of curfews? One might elicit a conversation or he might just say, because I said so. The other would elicit a, and now we're not going out anywhere tonight. You're staying home. There's a difference between asking a question and talking back. Let me offer a scriptural example of this. If you're taking notes, just jot down Job. Job loses everything he has, right up to being seemingly an inch away from his own death. And throughout much of the middle portion of the book of Job, Job says things like, I've done no wrong and I can prove it to God. If only I had a few minutes to plead my case. In chapter 31, he says, if only I had someone to hear my case, here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. And then God shows up in, verse 38, or in chapter 38, and it doesn't go so well for Job. God shows up, he begins to speak in Job chapter 38, and he says, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? when I fashioned it and set its foundations? Where were you when I enclosed the sea? Have you ever commanded life in the morning, brought rain to a parched desert, given birth to the frost on the grass? Did you set the stars in the sky or send out lightning bolts from a thunderstorm? Have you established wisdom and understanding? Tell me again, Job, about all the stuff that you know. 
Where were you when I laid the very pillars that the earth is founded upon? If you think you have such great answers. Paul picks up that theme and he says, we as mere humanity should be careful questioning the creator of the universe about what's right or wrong, about what's fair or unfair. He sees and knows and understands in a limitless way what we see and know and understand in the most limited of ways available. Who are we to question? It doesn't mean Paul's not going to answer the question in verse 19. In fact, he's going to. But he wants us to understand who we are in relation to the God of the universe. And so he's going to illustrate in the rest of verse 20 and then verse 21 and 22. He's going to illustrate with this image of a potter and this potter's pots. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here this morning because understanding these verses, and I think specifically verse 23, is the key to understanding all of Romans 9 and how it links into Romans chapter 8. Here's what the second half of verse 20 says. It says this, Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? The second half of verse 20. Will what is formed say to the one who formed it? What is formed, the word there is plasma. It's where we get the word plastic. Will what is formed, the plasma, say to the one who formed it? That word is plasso. Will the plasma say to the plasso, why did you make me like this? Will the plastic say to the one who formed the plastic, how come you made me in this way? Paul says it would be crazy in the first half of verse 20, for a human being to ask God why God did the thing that he did. It would be even more ridiculous for the clay to ask the clay former why it is that they made them this way. I gave uh, a family some Play-Doh on on, uh, Saturday morning, yesterday. And I said, you can make whatever you want out of this Play-Doh. Just bring it back to me on Sunday morning. They came back with a mountain, potentially inspired by Dr. Seuss. It kind of looks like Mount Crumpet with some extra color. It would be crazy for me, having given them the Play-Doh and said, make whatever you want out of this. It'd be crazy for me to say, you know, I wanted something hyper-spiritual. I wanted you to bring like Jesus on the cross or an empty tomb or, you know, some great landscape of like the different soils from the parable of the sower. It'd be one thing for me to say that because they're free and independent and they could make whatever they wanted and bring back whatever they wanted. It'd be even more ridiculous, Paul says, for the Play-Doh to say to this family, I wanted to be a hot dog. Why did you make me a mountain? Paul says it's a ridiculous question a question that the, the clay, the plasma, has no right to ask the plasso, who is infinitely greater, infinitely wiser, infinitely more in control than the plasma. It would be ridiculous for a mere man to ask God that question, but that's not even the right view, Paul says. It would be ridiculous for the clay, for the pot, to say to the potter, 
How come you made me like this? It makes no sense. What we saw in Romans 9, 6 to 18, Paul is starting to push further here. God can have mercy on whom he will have mercy, compassion on whom he will have compassion. He will harden whom he wants to harden. That's right out of Romans chapter nine. And then Paul says, and for you to ask a question is kind of ridiculous. Who are you, mere man? Who are you, piece of plasma, to ask the creator of the universe to talk back to the creator of the universe? And so Paul then goes on to talk about objects for honor and dishonor, objects for wrath versus objects for mercy. And we need to understand exactly how he's using these phrases. So what if God, wanting to display his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What, does, what is an object of wrath? What does that mean exactly? I read this as that saying, objects of wrath, that's humanity's default mode. When you look at all that Paul is saying in Romans and where he is right here in Romans chapter nine, God created, God created everything. And he says multiple times in Genesis one and two that all of it is good. And then in Genesis chapter three, humanity sins. Adam and Eve sin and the stain of sin enters the world and it breaks literally everything. Everything is broken. And now humanity, Romans chapter five affirms, is born into Adam's sin. And it's not just that we're born into that sin, we inherit that sin. It's that most of the time as humanity, when we sin, we do so willfully and joyfully. I mean, it's not that like someone puts a gun to our head and said, and now you need to break the Lord's commands. We just do it. Paul says, you deserve destruction for that. That's Romans one through three. We deserve the just punishment for our unrighteousness, for our sin before a holy God. And that that. Uh, punishment is destruction. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. God is right and just and fair in bringing that upon all of humanity. And yet, there are these objects of mercy and those are the display of God's amazing grace. There are some pots that God has chosen to show mercy to. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy, compassion on whom he will have compassion. If God chose not to have mercy on anyone, what would happen? We would all go the default route. We would all end up eternally separate from him. And yet he doesn't. He chooses to have mercy on some. Elder D.J. Ward said, if God did not choose some, heaven would have none. We would all go the default object of wrath, destruction. But God has been merciful. How so? Let's keep looking at verse 22. What if God, wanting to display his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? He bears patiently with humanity in our Adam-inherited, sin-stained, default mode. He's overwhelmingly patient with sinful humanity. If you need a picture of that, consider the majority of the Old Testament. If you need a more personal picture of that, consider your own life. You can't even think back and remember the first time you sinned, yet you're still breathing. What did you deserve when that happened? Death. The wage of sin is death. And yet here we are. God is overwhelmingly, abundantly 
patient. Why? Why is he that way? Well, verse 23. And what if he did this with patience, acted with patience, in order to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? Why would God be patient? Well, he would be patient in order to display, to make known the riches of his glory. How? By acting with mercy on some objects. God has great patience in order to display his glory by showing great mercy. I think verse 23 offers the clarifying explanation of verses 11 and 12. That God acts in order to work in accordance with his purpose of election. Not from works, but from the one who calls. I think verse 23 offers clarification on verses 17 and 18. I raised you up for this purpose that I may display my power and you make my name or make my name proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. I think 23 is the answer to what Paul calls a ridiculous question in verse 19. How can God be fair in this? And the answer in all of that is the display of his glory the display of his name through the gift of mercy. There are two glories in verse 23, if you look at it. To make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. That first one is the glory that's to be seen and proclaimed in the whole earth. Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose that I might make my name known, display my power in the whole earth. That is why God raised up Pharaoh. I'm going to display my name, display my glory. How so? By showing mercy to who? Israel, in slavery. I am going to save them and it will display my glory and it will display my mercy on those people. Most powerfully, this has been seen in the giving of Jesus Christ on humanity's behalf. The display of the riches of God's glory right there on the cross for the sin of all of the world. Proclaiming, displaying the richness of God's glory in an act of incredible mercy in Jesus Christ on the cross. There's a second glory here. To make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. If the first glory is to be displayed for the whole earth, the second glory is something that certain people, objects of mercy, are going to actually step into and experience. If it's an easy flip for you, or if you just remember Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified it has an end point one glory to be displayed to the ends of the the earth to all the nations to the whole world one glory to be stepped into and experienced by those who are objects of mercy those God foreknew he predestined he called he justified he glorified that's a certainty you can't fall out of that chain. The world will see the glory of God and has seen it through the Son, and others will step into that glory by grace received through faith. How do we explain verses 11 and 12 of Romans 9? We explain it by the glory of God 
shown by, through his mercy to humanity. How do we explain verses 17 and 18, the glory of God displayed through mercy? How do we answer the question of verse 19, the glory of God displayed through mercy? Let me offer a scriptural picture of this. One is Pharaoh in Exodus. God says, I raised you up for this purpose that I might make my power known and display or proclaim my name to the whole earth. The other is Esther. What does God tell Esther or what is Esther told? Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. What's the bottom line in each instance? Mercy, the rescuing of the Jewish people, once from Pharaoh in Egypt and once from Xerxes and Persia. How does God accomplish that mercy? Well, in one instance with Pharaoh, he uses a pot for a disnoble purpose. Pharaoh, in all of his sin-stained, human brokenness, self-hardening, God-hardening person is used to display the mercy of God and the glory of his name to all of the earth in the rescuing of the Jewish people. In Esther, we've got a pot for a noble purpose. Someone who trusts and obeys and believes and has faith and God brings her to a certain moment in order to make his glory known by mercifully saving Israel. We're told that God clearly does the acting in both of those places. He raised up Pharaoh. He brought Esther for that moment. He's free and independent and chooses as he so wishes. Mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, hardening on whom he will harden. And yet in both instances, Pharaoh and Esther make hundreds of choices. Hundreds of them. Think about Esther. Okay, I brought you to this spot for this reason. And yet she chooses to go into the room with Xerxes. What is she wearing? Where does she look? Where does she stop and stand? Where does, how does she position herself? What's the makeup look like? Hundreds of decisions. Same thing on Pharaoh's side. Hundreds of decisions. How does he act when Moses comes the first time? What if after plague number six, he just said, you know what? I get it. Get out of here. Then what? No Passover. It doesn't happen. No final plague. How do those two things work? I don't know. We're left with a host of questions. What is the order? What what comes first? Free choice? God's election? Why would God choose some and not others? How come some people hear the gospel and choose to harden their hearts while other people hear the gospel and they have these amazing repentant moments? Why would God choose me? That's maybe the most powerful question. None of those are given perfectly clear biblical answers. I wish I had those to offer. I don't. And so I'll offer what I think I can based on Romans chapter nine and the rest of scripture. God elects, we can't get away from it. It's there in scripture. We have to acknowledge that reality and then work with it. And yet humans choose. And in a complicated way that we can't see perfectly at both extremes, I think both are operating. Let me offer an explanation I don't think anyone is elected for heaven and has to be dragged there kicking and screaming. Ah, God, I just really don't want this whole eternity in heaven thing, but you elected me, so I guess I'm going. That doesn't happen. And on the other side of that coin, no one is going to endure God's wrath for all of eternity while having begged and pleaded for that not to be the case. No one is going to spend their life wishing they had been elected only to find out that they weren't. What's the order of that? How does it work? 
I don't know entirely. It's a mystery that's hard to understand. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Isaac was a child of promise. Ishmael was merely a child of the flesh. Pharaoh was hardened and he hardened. Others were shown mercy and chose to receive it. The Bible doesn't give us enough of a glimpse into that for us to know all of the answers, but it does give us enough of a glimpse to know that it's absolutely true. And then don't miss the importance of verse 24. That God's done this in order to display the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. And then Paul says, on us, the ones he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He displays his glory and mercy in both some of Israel and some Gentiles. That's a huge deal, one that we should be incredibly thankful for. We should be glad that God chooses as he does because in so doing, he has chosen to include people in true Israel from all the nations of the earth. And that means that we sit here today, if you have been justified by the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ, praise the Lord for verse 24, that God in his infinite knowledge and wisdom in his consistent word and his holy work chose to bring in Gentiles. So I'm going to work quickly through verses 25 to 29. Paul offers scriptural authentication for this entire thing that he's been describing up to this point. Why? Because the word of God is consistent. There's been an expansion to the Gentiles. Verse 25 and 26 come from the book of Hosea. Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Paul takes a statement that was made explicitly to Israel through Hosea and his wife Gomer. Their child was to be named not my people. That's the English translation. Their, uh, their next child was to be named unloved. God said, Israel has rejected me. They're not my people. They don't believe. They're unloved. And Paul expands that to include Gentiles who were not God's people, who weren't given the same kind of love that Abraham was. And Paul says the Gentiles have been pulled in to this, that God's plan for salvation has always included the nations. That was the covenant to Abraham. You will be a nation and you will be blessed that you might be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. If the nations were not included, then God's word has failed. Verse six, but it hasn't. It hasn't failed. Then he goes on and he talks about Israel explicitly in verses 27 through 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. There's this expansion to the Gentiles and a restriction within Israel. Like all of humanity... The Israelites are sinful, but a remnant will be saved. Israel had all the privileges and advantages that Paul points out in verses one through five, and yet they wandered and they were unfaithful. By their sin, they're objects of wrath. That's their default. That's what they deserved. And yet God bore with them with great patience in order that he might display his glory by showing mercy to a remnant, a number of Israelites that would be true Israel and would be saved. And if God didn't choose to mercifully save a remnant, then they would have been completely wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah were. God's been warning Israel of that for generations. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to them 
not all Israel is Israel. But true Israel includes a remnant of the Jewish people and a multitude of Gentiles. What do we do with this? Brian, you guys can come on up. I want to offer three things as we close here. The first is that amazing grace here, that's what we're seeing, amazing mercy, amazing grace, requires a paradigm shift. We often come to the Bible strictly looking for answers. We want to put God under a magnifying glass on trial and say, answer all the questions according to how I want you to answer them. We approach the Bible like it's a textbook, like we would read our, a geometry book or a science book, like we would read a textbook on physics or fluid dynamics. And we say, provide me all the answers. And what God has said is, I've provided you a picture of myself. I've provided you a definition of who you are and who I am and what it means to live in relationship with me. Scripture is about more than just answers. It's about how we live in light of who God is. You might need a paradigm shift this morning. One that says, I'm not just coming to to the word for answers. I'm coming to the word for life, life to the full what it looks like to live in relationship with the Lord. One that looks like our, I'm coming with a, a paradigm that says, God, what do you want from me? Not God, here's what I demand from you. Amazing grace demands that we approach scripture in the right way. Amazing grace makes salvation available. I believe there are those in this room right now, today, that God has decided to have compassion on. I believe there are those in this room today that in some miraculous, merciful way, God is calling and you need to choose. And I don't know how it all works. I don't know exactly what the order of things is or how all the questions are answered, but I know that scripture says both of those things are happening and I think it's happening for some in this room right now and you need to respond to that and you need to receive that. Look, God is not gonna go chasing after someone and not catch them. You don't outrun the Pomeranians in this case. If God is calling, you need to respond. You can do that this morning. Our staff will be under the exit sign over there during our time of worship. We would love to talk with you and pray with you. And then last but not least, amazing grace motivates a pursuit of holiness. I wanna end us where we started. In 2 Peter 3, verses 14 through 16, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight, at peace. Some of this is hard to understand. The unstable will twist it and turn it and try to make it say something it doesn't. But Peter says, what you do between now and the glory that you're certainly going to step into is make every effort to live in a way that glorifies the Lord, is molded into the image of his son, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the image of Christ. Make every effort. Amazing grace requires that we come to scripture looking for what that means. Amazing grace means that salvation's available and the Lord might be stirring and calling in you this morning and you need to respond. Amazing grace makes it possible for us to pursue holiness. And so as we worship here, and you can stand up, we're going to sing Amazing Grace together, the hymn. Because that's what the people of God ought to proclaim at all times. The amazing, unthinkable, unfathomable grace of God. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's sing together.